The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. This morning, we hope, Lord willing, to observe the communion service and kind of follow out the Lord's command to observe that ordinance in remembrance of His death and burial and resurrection on our behalf. And uh, leading up to that, I'd like to focus on a particular phrase in Revelation chapter 12 as we uh, think about uh, Satan. First of all, Satan being the accuser of the brethren, but thankfully, Satan being cast down as the accuser of the brethren. We were in the same passage of Scripture on the radio this morning. We are beginning a series on spiritual warfare and trying to set the context for that. We'll hopefully be digging, digging into a lot of specifics on that, of who our enemies are, learning a little bit more about Satan. You need to know who your enemy is if you're going to have a good battle plan to attack him. But then also, thankfully, all of the, uh, the protections and the strength and the encouragement that we have uh, to withstand the devices of Satan and the temptations of Satan. And I think maybe one of the most discouraging of Satan's tactics is his um, desire, uh, Satan's desire, to, to accuse God's children, and particularly in the context of making them doubt if they are really even among God's children and the eternal life that has been secured and bought and paid for solely by the blood of Jesus and there's nothing that can separate a child of God from their eternal home in heaven. That is totally secure and hope of eternal life that God that cannot lie promised before the world began. There is no possibility that any of God's children will ever be anywhere other than in heaven. But the only thing that Satan can do here in time is to make God's children doubt that fact to quench their joy and to quench their fruitfulness in the kingdom as they walk around discouraged because they are doubting, am I really among God's children at all. So we see here in Revelation chapter 12 this <clears throat> declaration of the effect. We've spent some time in Revelation 12 recently in the messages here at Macedonia considering the kingdom of God as well. And we see Jesus being born and Satan trying to destroy him as he's being born through Herod and then God conquering that wicked desire of the dragon and then the son the, the man-child being called up to heaven to rule with the rod of iron. And then we have this declaration here in verse 10 that was the declaration in heaven when Jesus said it is finished on the cross and, and completed all the requirements to save his people from their sins. In Revelation chapter 12 and in verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren 
is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Now I want you to think about the fact that God chose a people, chose his elect in Christ before the world began. Uh, You can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8, and we want to think about the fact of this uh, covenant of grace that God uh, secured in the Godhead and the three persons of the Trinity before the world began. And there was a time, there was a time where uh, man chose to sin. And even in the midst of that, it's, it's such a beautiful, um, consistent theme in Scripture that God's people are disobedient and then God sins typically through the mouth of a prophet Uh, some type of judgment, you've sinned, God's going to judge you for this, but God is always so gracious in the midst of his plain declarations of judgment, he always gives a promise of restoration, always, that he says, yes, you've sinned, and yes, if if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, but you will return to the land. But God will not forsake. There's always this promise of restoration. And it's such a blessing that in Genesis chapter 3, when Satan tempts Adam and Eve to sin in the garden and partake of that fruit that, that caused man to die there, he, he, even in the midst of, of that situation where Satan thought that he had won, he thought that he had defeated God's, God's chosen a person, and that's this is a lot bigger topic that maybe hopefully we can deal with on the radio uh, in regards to the origin of Lucifer and the origin of Satan. He was the anointed cherub that was put in charge of this whole earth, and he did not like it when on the sixth day, God put man in charge of the earth. So what did he do? What did he want to do? He wanted to tear down Adam that was made perfect in the image of God, you see? And he thought that he had won. He thought that he had accomplished his end. He wanted to tear down a man that was made in God's image, and he thought that he had defeated God in that instance. And then when Satan thought that he had won, God reminds him in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed and it... That's speaking of Jesus Christ. Not who, but it, okay? Her seed, it, shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So even in the midst of the fall of man, this is the first messianic prophecy in all of Scripture. In this this instance where Satan thought that he had won and Satan thought that he had defeated uh, God's chosen uh, man that was elevated above him in rank over the, the earth, God reminds him that there's going to come a day where the seed of the woman, that's very important, not the seed of the man. He was virgin born. He did, uh, Joseph was his adopted father, but not his biological father. It was the seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman, serpent, he is going to crush your head. And that's what happened on the cross, right? That's what happened on the cross, that he crushed the head of Satan and he crushed the head of death. He defeated death on the cross by dying for us. So, Man now is plunged into sin, 
And Satan has known this whole time that he is going to be a defeated foe. But legally, legally, there was a period of time prior to the cross where the blood of Christ had not yet been shed for the elect. Now, I'm not saying that Satan was justified in making this accusation, but at least he thought that he had a a standing to make that accusation. Because when God made a covenant before the world began, the God that cannot lie and God that cannot fail, obviously there is no possibility, okay? There was no possibility than anything other than Jesus fully saving all of his people on the cross. There was no other possibility. However, there was a period of time where God's people in the Old Testament were permitted to go to heaven, but the blood of Christ had not been paid yet. Right? Do you understand that that chronology there? And in Romans chapter 8, we always highlight the last of these five, the last of these five um, components of the covenant of redemption. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his son. Whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, then he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. Right? So God's people are not yet glorified. We're certainly not in glorified bodies yet. But in God's mind, the covenant of redemption is so secure that it's as if in his mind, the resurrection of the dead has already happened and we're already glorified in God's mind. It says here, called. There are children of God that were chosen in Christ before the world began that are not yet born, but in God's mind they're called even though the new birth has not happened in their life yet. You see? So even those Old Testament saints, Moses and Abraham and Job and David, all those godly Old Testament saints, they were permitted to go to heaven. But the blood of Christ that was going to justify them had not yet been shed. For lack of a better term, God essentially let them into heaven based on credit of the blood of Jesus. You know, think about uh, there's no possibility of default with God, but this is common in our our, uh, world as well. You know, you, uh, you... sign a mortgage note, a 30-year note, well, you don't have to pay off that whole mortgage and fully own the house before you can live in the house, right? No, you get to live in the house. And there's going to come a time that that's going to be paid in full. And guess what? If, if you happen to default in the middle of that, you get kicked out of the house, right, by the bank. <laughs> but God allowed his Old Testament saints into the presence of God when they died based on the promise of Jesus that he would come and justify them by his blood on Calvary's cross in 30 AD outside of Jerusalem, right? In the same way that in God's mind we are already glorified, even Adam, who I believe was a child of God, even Adam and Seth and Abel and all of those early New Testament saints, they were allowed into heaven because of the promise that Christ would come and justify them on the cross, okay? However, Satan 
from his perspective, he said, God, you are not, you are not just because you're letting people into heaven with sins that aren't yet paid for. Now, I'm not saying that was a valid accusation, but that was Satan's accusation. Why? Because the price had not been paid. But it was as good as done because God, that cannot lie, promised to do it. Okay? But then, that little loophole that Satan tried to, uh, tried to exploit for, you know, about 4,000 years... The earth's a little over 6,000 years old, and then we've been about 2,000 years since the death of Jesus. So about 4,000 years, that was the kind of accusation that he made. But did he have any standing? Did he have any standing to make that accusation at all when the blood of Jesus Christ was bought and paid for? Well, no, of course not, right? He is cast down. He has no grounds. He has no authority to do that. But Satan is not deterred. <laughs> Since he's a liar, he's the father of lies. And it says in John chapter 10, that the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent and Satan is a defeated foe and he knows he's a defeated foe. He knows he has but a short time. And the only thing that he can do for the church and for God's people, as it says later on in Revelation chapter 12, to the remnant of her seed, to the remnant of the church, and those that obey the commandments, which is us, it's the children of God, it's the church. His only hope, his only goal, now that he knows that he's a defeated foe, is to quench as much joy from God's people as he can here in this world. And to steal and to kill and destroy not their eternal life. Because that is secure in Jesus Christ, right? There is no way. You know, what we, what we stopped on, I should not have uh, went away from that just yet. In Romans chapter 8, <clears throat> we're justified. We're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Skip to verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? There is no charges. There is no justified uh, offense or transgression before God that anyone can say you are anything but justified before God. Why? Because God's the one that declared you to be justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is he that condemneth? No one has the right to tell a child of God you're going to go to hell. No one has the right to tell them that. Why? Because you've been bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus. Who is he that condemneth? Nobody. Nobody. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who make the intercession for. Isn't that good to be reminded of the fact of, you know, you have these different courtrooms of justification and justification by faith. We can get confused in regards to where in our faith, if we think, that we're a child of God or not. Our hearts can get confused. And sure enough, justification by works, the opinion of others, boy, that can sure get confusing too. <laughs> I'll tell you, if we didn't know, um, talking about justification by works and our assessment of other people's actions and, and do I believe that they show fruit to, to show assurance of salvation, outside of a couple verses in Luke and Luke's gospel, you would have zero, zero assurance of the thief, of thief on the cross going to heaven. You look at his life, and outside of a couple 
verses in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus said, Today you're going to be with me in paradise. In anyone's courtroom of justification by works, they said, there, there is nothing good about this guy. He's a malefactor. He's a wicked criminal, and he got exactly what was coming to him. So, so based on our assessment of other people's actions, we can reach the wrong conclusion, right? We can reach the wrong conclusion. And I'll tell you, we can reach the wrong conclusion even in our own heart, which is what justification by faith is. That's, that's my internal assurance in my heart that I'm a child of God and how many children of God are walking around in their lives today doubting if they are truly among God's children because unfortunately many times because of the false gospel another gospel that's being delivered to them that makes them doubt are you really among God's children why because in that idea the the basis of salvation is not the blood of jesus solely it's based on something you do so therefore inevitably you're going to doubt something that you do as you ought you should doubt if there's a work that is required for you to go to heaven you should always doubt that work because every single work that i can do it says in the psalms every man in his best state the pinnacle even the born-again, regenerated man in serving God. Every man in his best state, he's altogether vanity. Altogether vanity. The best of my righteousness, the righteousnesses that I can muster together, the very best I can put together is nothing but filthy rags before God. So when you're being told that there is something that you have to do to go to heaven, you're always going to feel insufficient, right? And boy, is there anything that Satan wants to latch on to more then to convince the child of God that they're not a child of God. Because they're not going to live the abundant life if they feel that way. You know, it says that we have the ability to lay hold on eternal life. We can reach out and we can touch through the Spirit of God and through Jesus Christ and through the kingdom. We can reach out and touch by faith, the hem of Christ's garment. We can reach out and touch and latch on to eternal life. But there's a lot of children of God that they don't, not only have they not laid hold on it, they don't have a grasp on eternal life at all. And as I said before, in their own heart of justification by faith, they feel like that I'm going to hell. But isn't it great this last phrase right here. Who is he that condemneth? You know, man can condemn you. Man can tell you, oh, they're not good enough, they're going to hell. That's justification by works. And they can reach the wrong conclusion. Your own heart can reach the wrong conclusion and say, um, this is in um, 1 John chapter 2. Speaking of justification by faith and the wrong conclusion that even our heart can reach. Verse 19, 1 John chapter 2. Whereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. We have confidence, we have assurance. But if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. 
You know, how many children of God have sang that song? And there's a, there's a place for being convicted and feeling to be a wretched sinner because you are a wretched sinner. But don't, don't ever forget you're a redeemed wretched sinner. <laughs> if you feel that way, yes, you are a wretched sinner, but you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, okay? So I'm not saying you need to just walk around and be prideful all the time. No, there's a place for humility and conviction, but not to the degree that you're walking around and singing, literally doubting. One of the songs that we sing, uh, you know, I doubt that I'm born again. I doubt that I'm really a child of God. No, the Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you truly are a child of God. But sometimes our hearts can get confused. Our hearts can condemn us. Our hearts and Satan latching on to that can make you doubt, man, if I died today, maybe that preacher's right. And isn't that so sad? That that's so prevalent in Christianity. They're the exact opposite of what the preaching of the gospel is intended to do, which is give assurance to God's children. It doesn't mean anything. It's foolishness to people that haven't been born again in their heart. It doesn't mean anything to them if they're not born again. But the whole purpose of the gospel is to give good news, to give us assurance. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, crying to her that her warfare is accomplished, all past tense. But there's people out there saying they're preaching a gospel that's not saying the warfare is accomplished, that's not providing comfort. What are they saying? If you haven't done X, Y, Z, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. That is the exact opposite of any good news for a child of God that feels their unworthiness, that feels the conviction, and only a child of God will feel that. Only a child of God that has been born again by the Spirit of God will feel that kind of conviction. And I pray that there are people in other denominations that, first of all, they need to be reading the King James Version of the Bible, otherwise you're going to get very confused, but you need to read your Bible and say that the gospel is never, never to try to make people doubt if they're a child of God or not. The purpose of the gospel is to declare what Jesus did and it matters to God's children and it doesn't matter to anybody else. We just preach the gospel and then the Holy Spirit applies it to whoever is applicable, <laughs> If you're a child of God, it means something to you. It gives you assurance. And if not, it's the savor of death unto death, and that's the Lord's business, all right? But the, the idea of someone standing up and saying, if you don't do this, you're going to hell, that's the exact opposite, the exact opposite of what God intended the gospel to be. And I, I don't want to be too unkind here, but who is it? Who is it that is the person that accuses the brethren, to make them doubt if they're a child of God. That's Satan's business. I tell you, I'd be scared to death if I thought that, and I, and I thought that's what I was supposed to preach. That's Satan's business, to condemn God's children. The preacher's business is to encourage them and strengthen them and edify them and comfort them. That's Satan's business, to condemn them. <laughs> so even if people get confused here in time, who is he that condemneth? Christ died, he's risen again. But even if man's opinion is wrong of you, even if, even if your own opinion of yourself is wrong, isn't it great to be reminded that Jesus Christ, as it says right here at the end of verse 34 in Romans chapter 8, 
God is at the right hand of God and he makes intercession for us. Man can be wrong, I can be wrong, but I'll tell you, even if I'm doubting that I'm a child of God, isn't it good to know that, that Jesus is right there by the Father saying, don't worry about him, I got him. <laughs> I paid for him. I paid for him. Continuing on to the end of the chapter. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels. What's Satan? He's a fallen angel. Don't you worry about Satan. You need to be worried about him in, as a roaring lion trying to devour you here in discipleship. But you don't need to be concerned that Satan is going to uh, tear away any of God. Because guess what? He can't get into that father's hand, can he? <laughs> that's what Jesus, that's what, uh, Jesus said in... Uh, John's gospel, he said, they are in my Father's hand, and there ain't nobody that can pluck them out of my Father's hand. There is no possibility that Satan can pluck one of God's children from the eternal security that they have in the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? <clears throat> Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 very quickly. <clears throat> In this instance, Paul is saying that God lifted him up in this um, amazing experience, being caught up into the third heaven, and he saw things that were not lawful to be uttered. And then he says here in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelation, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, the Holy Spirit, in its perfect wisdom, did not tell us precisely what this thorn in the flesh for Paul was. He had poor eyesight. He references that in quite a few epistles. But the Holy Spirit, in its wisdom, did not describe particularly what Paul's specific thorn was. Because if it was eyesight... You could read over that and say, well, my eyesight's good. That's not applicable to me. But I think all of us can relate to a thorn in the flesh that Satan tries to capitalize on to buffet us and to injure us and to convict us and to condemn us. Mm -hmm. Now, this is just my opinion. And I, again, the Holy Spirit left this as a broad principle instead of specifics for a reason. But I'll tell you, if I was Satan, if I was Satan, I'm pretty sure that I would bring back to Paul's mind very often me consenting to the death of Stephen and them casting, his, uh, casting their coats at his feet and me consenting to the death. If I was Satan, I would bring back to the mind of Paul that he killed Christians that he may now be worshiping with their family members. If I was Satan, that's something that I would capitalize on. And I think there's a high probability that that conviction over these past sins was the thorn in the flesh that Satan buffeted Paul with. Now, if that was the case, if that was the case, there probably were times, we don't have time to go to Acts chapter 9, but there were times, not just after that initial moment, but think about how Paul felt. He was born again on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he's just overwhelmed there on the road to Damascus. But then he goes to town 
and for three days he doesn't have any food, he doesn't have any drink, and there's three days before Ananias shows up and baptizes him. Do you think as the conviction of the Holy Spirit was, was coming down on the soul and the heart of Saul, do you think that he felt like a redeemed, born-again, joyful child of God during those three days where he couldn't see anything before Ananias came and laid his hands on him and said, you're a chosen vessel. Do you think he felt saved during those three days? I've told you many times before. I don't think he all of a sudden decided I'm going to have a three-day fast. I think he was so physically overwhelmed with the sinful actions that he previously undertake. If he ate anything, he probably threw it up. He was so literally sick to his stomach over his actions, he didn't all of a sudden just decide, I'm going to have a godly fast for three days. He couldn't eat. He couldn't physically consume anything because he was so overwhelmed. So do you think that's, that Saul felt the assurance of salvation? Now, he was redeemed, right? He was born again. But there was a period of time where the messenger of Satan... <laughs> Boy, I'll tell you, the messenger of Satan, it was buffeting him hard them three days. Let me tell you. But aren't you glad that God always overrules the devices of Satan? There's a line in um, How Firm a Foundation that God will sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. God will use many times our most severe afflictions to sanctify us to greater service to him. And he says here, it doesn't stop there, right? He, he's, he's enduring this, this buffeting of the messenger of Satan for this thing I besought the Lord thrice and made depart from me. But then what was God's answer? I'm not going to take it away because it was there. God suffered it for a purpose, to keep him humble, lest he should be exalted above measure. But he said, my grace is sufficient for that. And by the way, what's the answer? What's always the answer to a conviction of sin that says I'm not worthy to be saved? Well, you know what? In your conscience, you're right. <laughs> There's nothing in you that's worthy to be saved. What's the answer? If my grace is sufficient for it. It has to be salvation by grace alone, you see? <laughs> When we see how wretched we are in our nature, there's no good work that we could ever do that's good before God. What has to be the answer? It has to be that God's grace is sufficient because nothing in me is sufficient. My grace is sufficient for thee. And my strength is made perfect in weakness. And now all of a sudden, Paul's mindset changes. It's not, Lord, please take this away. No, I, now I see the value of this suffering. Now I see the, the blessing to keep me humble and that I don't get too big of a head as being the most prominent apostle in the New Testament, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Okay? Now, Satan was cast down on the cross, and his head was crushed. His head was crushed. Again, as we make our way through spiritual warfare on the radio, never forget that fact that he is a defeated foe and he is causing as much havoc as he can 
because he knows he only has a short time. He know, By the way, Satan knows the word of God way better than any of us. Way better than any of us. And that's how he manipulates it, to try to deceive God's children. But you want to know what else this Bible says? It tells him exactly where he's going. He knows that. He knows. He knows Revelation 19, the end of that, that says you're going to be cast into the lake of fire. He knows where he's going. <laughs> so he knows he has but a short time. And the only thing that he can do is make God's people as miserable as they can and steal as much of their abundant life as he can here in time because he knows he can't touch their eternal life. He can't touch anything about the joys of heaven that we will experience for all of eternity. But boy, he can make God's children miserable to a large degree if we do not resist him, resist the devil and he will flee from you. There in verse 11, how do we overcome Satan? We overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of his testimony. When, when Satan's uh, overwhelming you, what do you do? You just point him to the cross. You point him to the cross. Hey, you remember, <laughs> you know, we are in Christ, right? We are one with Christ. As the bride of Christ, we are one flesh. In other words, we can say, hey, you remember my, my Savior's foot on your head? <laughs> you remember that foot? That was my foot. <laughs> Isn't that good? We are more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. Why? Because we're in Christ. Christ crushed the head of Satan. We were in Christ. We crushed the head of Satan. He said, do you remember Satan's, do you remember Christ's foot? <laughs> You're defeated. You're defeated by the blood of the lamb. And we also have the ability in our discipleship to defeat him by the word of his testimony. That's the sword of the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. And all the armor of God there that's so important and vital for us in Ephesians chapter 6. So, again, there's a place for conviction. There's a place for certainly not walking around and with a haughty mindset. But don't ever let that conviction of sin make you doubt if you're a child of God. Because that's what Satan wants to do. Satan makes, wants to make you doubt. The Spirit of God. What's the role of the Spirit of God? The Spirit, this is Romans chapter 8. About verses 14 to 17. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You see, that's the Spirit's role. The Spirit's role is to give you assurance. Satan's desire is to quench that assurance, you see. So remind Satan, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Res remind Satan that yes, you, you try to be the accuser of the brethren, but you're just a liar. <laughs> You're a liar, and you've been cast down by the blood of the Lamb and by the heel of our Savior, and there's nothing that you can do to separate me from the love of God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.